Welcome to On Farm Trials with the PNW Farmers Network, where we explore the many trials that come along with cropping systems innovation in the inland Pacific Northwest. Plenty of questions get asked while farming across this region, and together, we're digging into what it's like to try to answer some of them as producers, researchers, and the many other professionals in the field that get things done. We're glad you're here. I'm your host, Carol McFarland. And today, we're talking with Dusty Walsh of TD Walsh Farms outside of Colbert, Washington. Thanks for having me out, Dusty. Yeah, um, no, thanks for coming. Appreciate yeah. you taking the time to stop by. Awesome. It's beautiful sitting here next to these flowers. I look forward to hearing a little bit more about those. In the meantime, would you share a bit about yourself, your farm, and who you farm with? Uh, sure. So I farm uh, with my dad, and then we have two, all, one, one full-time hired guy and then uh, part-time help through the busy season that uh, that we do cover, yeah, cover the ground with. Uh, my grandpa bought this place in 1950 where we started here, and um, so I guess that's, that's how we got here. Tell me a little bit more about your farming conditions. It's, I know you Already. farm a big range well, of, yeah, of so ground. We, so the home place here were sandy loam soils, 18 inch rainfall, um, just north of Spokane. So even though we have a little bit higher rainfall, we don't hold it in the dirt. So that June, July rain is super important for wheat yields for us. We either get it or we don't. You uh, said dirt, Dusty. Uh, well, <laughs> sometimes you have to make life a little simpler than it is. Right? Soil. Soil. That's right. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> that's good. Um, and, and the other places you're farming? Uh, so the last few years, we've picked up a little bit of ground between Reardon and Edwall, um, which again, drier, three-year rotation country typically. And then... Uh, a uh, place down by Tico that's more heart of the Palouse type soil. So we're learning new things about how to farm different places, but it gives us an opportunity to run away from the houses because we're right on that north edge of urban sprawl here. So uh, it's been a challenge for us looking forward. So excited for new opportunities. I mean, I do still remember when I first met you, I asked you what you grew and you said you grew houses that's, out here. It's pretty much the best thing. Yeah, no, that's so we are sitting here on the uh, the edge of the flower garden here. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? And maybe that's not so bad with having some houses. No, it's good to be clear. No, our location gives us an advantage on that. So my wife and I started a U-Pick flower farm here, um, inspired by some of the gal we worked for in Pullman, for Jane Stratton down there. Um, when we moved home from Pullman, Jane was like, well, you could do this there too. And my wife was like, oh, I guess we could. So we started out just growing flowers for her table, for my wife's table, but then it's grown to be a pretty good little enterprise for us. So. But there's, I don't know, it's about a quarter acre of cut flowers that we primarily do you pick. Um, so people come and get a bucket and clippers and go to town. So that's great. From the, we usually open the last last part of June, then run through frost, which sometimes can be September, the second week of September, all the way to like the third week of October last year. So. Well, um, thanks so much for sharing some of that. Um, you also are a Coug, aren't you? Yes, yep, yep. Have yep, bachelor's and master's from WSU. So. I played the research game for a while. If I wasn't farming, I'd probably be in research. It was at the time, so it was either come home and farm or stay and do research somewhere, I think. so. Well, now I got to ask what your graduate degree was in. Uh, crop science, cropping systems with Scott Holbert. So, yep. I bet that was a good experience. It was. Awesome. Well, um, I'm looking forward too to hearing more about how that influences your on-farm trials. So let's get to talking about those. Um, so what experiments and trials do you currently have going on your farm? The story starts back a couple of years earlier when we started growing sunflowers. So one of the neighbors had just started having success growing some sunflowers up here. And um, 
the advantage we have on sunflowers is that there's a market really close. And so we're only five miles from Global Harvest where they'll use the sunflowers for bird seed. Um, so we thought that would be a good opportunity for a rotation crop. I guess my degree being in cropping systems was also like, so wheat, there's spring wheat or fallow, winter wheat and spring wheat just isn't always cutting it, right? We gotta have something else in rotation to try and diversify these. And we've tried, used to be lentils way back when, they're hard to do no-till and the weed spectrum's getting harder and harder to control. So lentils weren't really an option for us anymore. For a lot of years, canola wasn't, a, didn't have a viable market here. My dad grew it when he could sell it through Intermountain back in the 90s. And then um, the market kind of went away, but then with Viterra coming in and making things more stable, um, canola has been a good rotation crop. Uh, and we tried garbanzo beans for a while because when I was in Pullman, I was like, everybody's growing garbanzo beans. Why can't we grow garbanzo beans? But garbanzo beans don't pay at five or six hundred dollars or six hundred pounds an acre. So we couldn't grow enough to make those pay. Uh, but we were like, well, the sunflowers seem to be a good viable rotation crop. And so we started growing those uh, up here. And so because of that, and then because we also had another neighbor that had bought a planter and was um, planting canola, with it and being able to cut his seed rate backs and having really good success with stands. Um, we thought, well, between the canola and the sunflowers, a planter might be a really good option for our area for us to be able to get the sunflowers planted well and um, use them on the canola too. And so, so we have the planter experiment, which we're pretty sold on uh, being a pretty good deal. And then sunflowers that we've learned quite a bit trying to grow those. And, and then we've done some cover crop grazing stuff with the cows. So. Sounds like you've really been having some fun on the farm lately. Gotta keep things interesting, right? Can't do the same old, same old all the time, yeah. so. Well, so tell me what I need to know about a planter. You know, as a soil scientist, I don't know, they don't right. teach us as much about equipment as we should know. So, so yeah. Uh, so you have to know that the biggest, all of the money in the equipment research is in corn and soybeans, right? And they plant corn with a planter. So I'm pretty sure most of the equipment research has gone into planters, right, in the Midwest. And so then we just get the trickle down of whatever comes out and works for wheat. Um, but uh, so it, the biggest advantage we have is it'll singulate seed. Um, it's a double disc opener with double gauge wheels, so it has really precise depth control. And um, you can meter out your seed spacing more precisely. And then it also gives you options, like we have uh, row cleaners on the front of ours. So doing it in a no-till situation, we can move a pretty significant amount of residue and still get the seed in soil and have a clean trench for that seed to come up in. Um, like how much residue are we talking? Well, we've gone, I mean like, so I planted spring canola into 100 bushel winter wheat residue at Tico this year um, with really good success. So, and there's a few places where there's a big chaff pile that it wasn't ideal, but overall across the whole field, it was really good. And so, I mean, you know, 80 bushel spring wheat stubble we've gone into or 100 bushel uh, winter wheat stubble, so. And to get canola in, is, canola is pretty picky about coming up in residue. So to have that come up well, I was really, really happy with. So, yep. That's exciting. So, yeah, I guess, um, do you want to, is there anything more you want to share about kind of the process of getting a planter? Like, how did you choose the one and? Uh, it was available in the state of Washington, right? No, I know that's, so the planter we ended up with was actually a twin row 20 inch. So it actually used to have twice as many openers on it. And we modified it to just be on 20 inch because I really wanted to be able to use those row cleaners and manage that residue. And I didn't think that I could, um, I couldn't get row cleaners on the original configuration for it with enough space. And so, um, and mostly when I was buying the planter, I was thinking of mostly planting winter canola here north of Spokane um, and being able to move a little bit of dirt to get to that moisture without having to go as deep. And 20 inches in winter canola is really good. 
sometimes I think closer would be better in spring canola, but we're making it work. So, nice. but yeah, mostly it was available on this side of the country. So <laughs> and I could actually go look at it before I had to buy it. Right. So that was kick the tires a little bit. That's right. Yep. Uh -huh. um, and is it working for you in the winter canola yeah. and getting down yeah. to that moisture? So learning there too. Right. So we did good at getting into moisture. I did learn that, um, we needed to have seed firmers on it to be able to push that seed. It's a little, a little plastic piece that rides in the opener between the double discs and actually the seed drops out in front of it, pushes it down into the moisture. And I mean, we run them on our single disc or go drill and I should have thought about it, but it didn't have ro it didn't have seed firmers on it the first year and then we just ran it. And so I got, being as dry as it was last fall, I got a lot of dry dirt falling down in the trench in with the seed and then I didn't have very good emergence. So some of the winter canola got seeded three times before, but we're learning. We'll do better this year. Well, that's what it's about, is the that's learning, right. right? It was an experiment. Yeah. And we learned what we needed to change. So. It seems like there's sometimes you do trials on purpose, and sometimes they just kind of happen, Maybe. and then you get to learn from the opportunistic trials. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, thanks. And the sunflowers are, are pretty exciting. I, um, do you want to talk a little bit more about um, trying, trying the sunflowers? Um, well, they've been a learning curve, too. I mean, it started off with... The first year we grew them was almost a complete failure because we learned that we have cutworms that'll eat um, sunflowers. And our neighbors hadn't had trouble with them because they're all conventional tillage. And we just said, well, we're just gonna no-till the sunflowers in, that'll be fine. Uh, but the cutworms hide in the residue. And then we also were using our disc drill or hoe drill. We used the hoe drill the first couple of years. And so your depth wasn't very precise. So your emergence was much more staggered. And um, so then, you know, there'd be a few plants would come up every day and the cutworms would come up every night and eat those plants. And then the next day, a few more plants would come up and the cutworms would eat those the next night. So we had this buffet spread out over a week or two for them to annihilate the crop. But so I call that our $30,000 sunflower school year. But, but we stuck with it. So, yeah, but we've made quite a few gains on it um, and being able to no-till them with the planter. I mean, the first step, going to the disc drill helped because then you get better depth. And so you get better emergence. Being able to spray for the bugs, knowing the timing that they were going to be there, that helps have an actual stand. Um, and then the planter probably is a big deal with the sunflowers being able to get the seed spacing correctly because that changes the seed. Basically, the plant spacing determines head size. Head size uniform head size makes them harvest or dry down and harvest consistently and uniformly. And so if you, because if you have big heads, they don't dry down as fast. You have little heads, they dry down way faster. And so, and sunflowers can be a late harvested crop anyway. I mean, we've been into the first part of November harvesting them before. I've had snow piled on top of them, but um, we try to avoid that. So if we get a uniform head size, we have the best chance of an early harvest. All right, you got, now I'm curious about what it's like to to run the combine through the sunflowers. It's pretty similar. We, just, we have a different header that has sunflower pans on it, but otherwise it's pretty much the same as wheat or whatever. But yeah. Unless they have snow on them. Unless they have snow on them. You got to wait on that. Combines do actually have heaters. I didn't know. Nobody in the Northwest knows that, but the heater will actually heat the cab up in the combine sometimes. They don't just have air conditioners. <laughs> yeah, so it sounds like you actually have three different ways that you're seeding different crops on your place. Yeah. I heard a hoe drill, a disc drill, and now your new yeah. planter. Okay, so okay, so we've been no-till for 20 years. My dad started with, um, so we bought the first no-till hoe drill in 2000, 2001. And so, um, so that was our go-to for everything for years and years. And then um, it wore out, believe it or not, after 20 years, right? Uh, and so, uh, and we started growing more of the canola and sunflower, so we wanted something with better depth control, so we went to a disc drill. And then that's what was our, we did everything with that for kind of two years. 
And then I bought the planter because of the sunflower and canola thing. So we just have the disc drill and the planter now. So the wheat, wheat all goes in with the disc drill. And then right now all the canola and sunflowers go in with the planter. So. Great. Thanks for sharing all of that. Um, I've got a few more questions for you. So, you know, as you're trying things, your planter experiments and your sunflowers, and you also have some integrated grazing, what questions are you trying to answer with these trials? Can we be more profitable and have better soil health with these or not, right? I mean, that's the big, I mean, that's our big picture is like, can we, can we grow crops better long-term, right? And so that's what the goals are always looking for with all of these. Um, yeah, so try, I mean, we're kind of on fairly marginal ground in some ways, right? And so... I see a lot of pine trees. There are a lot of pine trees, yeah. So it's an acidic cleared forest soil. And I mean, we're not, uh, I mean, we're 50 bushel winter wheat country, 50, 55 bushel winter wheat country, which is not super, and that's, and we're pretty inconsistent because we are dependent on those June rains. So it's like, we have lots of years of 30 bushel wheat and then we have a couple of 60 bushel wheat. and. So it varies a lot. So being able to weather, trying to even out those storms and do everything we can to conserve moisture in crop so that we're not as dependent on the June, the late rains. But there's, you can only make up so much for Mother Nature. But um, yeah. I heard you say even out those storms as part of a soil health goal. I mean, you know, I, right. as we talk about yield stability, that's right. in space across the landscape as well as time. That's something that we think and talk about. Yes. No, that would be good. Yep. <laughs> we're trying, yeah, trying to make things more even, right? Because that's, I mean, the banker wants to know return on investment year over year, right? So that's important too. But. So when you're trying stuff, what are you looking at as you, you know, you put something in that you're trying that's new or, or you know, a couple years in that you're, that's different. Um, what do you look for? So, so my master's degree and my research background wants me to quantify data, right? And be able to analyze it and make decisions based on that. But the reality is on the farm, sometimes that's pretty tough. And when it comes down to harvest and fall and weather's coming, you, we end up just getting the job done. Um, and so a lot of those decisions really end up being on visual cues, really. I mean, like, does the crop look healthier? Does it not? Um, we will use, we'll leave check strips here and there. Like, you know, it's, I mean, if you're, I guess not with the planter, we've pretty much gone, well, we'll just plant all the acres with the planter because it's actually really nice having two things putting seed in the ground at once because you can be seeding spring wheat and canola and get it all done. Um, so we're not as good about the actual quantifying statistical data as I would like to be given my background. But it just becomes hard practically to get it done. So, and then we do have a yield monitor in the combine. So theoretically we have that data, but I don't, it doesn't always, you can't always pluck it out. And, and you calibrate your yield monitor at the beginning uh, of every season, right? Yeah, at the beginning of the season, but not like on every field, like they say you're supposed to. And then, I don't know, I, we, have, we farm a lot of small fields up here, right? So there's a lot of little pieces and a lot of moving, and there's not very many good places to do larger scale measurable trials. So that's a challenge for me personally here, because I'd like to find places where it makes sense to try these things out. But... If you're, you only have a 20 acre field, it's hard to get all the, it's not worth changing stuff up in the middle of it, right? You just have to get it done and move on to the next one. So then when you're making comparisons, when you're trying stuff, how does that, how does that look? Is that more of a year to year thing? Do you just kind of like peek over the fence, see how your neighbor's doing? What does that look like? We don't have that many neighbors right next to us. They're all on the other side of some tree line and they all do too many different things. So it's hard to compare to neighbors, I think. Um, we, it's probably, it's a lot of it's year over year or 
when we do have, uh, I guess a lot of things that we try, we'll end up trying on like say half the acres, right? So then we can compare one half to the other. And the other, our soils, even, even here being on clay or I mean sandy loam soils, our soils do vary quite a bit from place to place. And um, so that makes it hard to get really good comparisons. Variability like, across like, the landscape like, yeah, <laughs> in, in Eastern Washington. I don't, that's oh, not a thing. Never. Right. And I don't, and the, it's not like the, uh, not like your research plots are ever, or they're always representative of every acre in Eastern Washington. Right. Mm -hmm. They only go on even soil. Yes. They, we, they set aside a special portion of the Palouse and made it very homogenous so that right. the research trials could get, no, that's what blocking is for, Dusty. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't do very much replicated block trialing, so. No, that's okay. You know, I do have a question for you though. I mean, if, if you did have a bit more bandwidth, you know, using what you learned in a research context, like how, what would you like to see? Do you think that would be like kind of accessible on the farm, like if you did have a bit more time and bandwidth, like what would you do? I mean, I think, it, I mean, like larger-ish, uh, like strip trials with, that you can collect data with a yield monitor are probably, or it would probably be realistic. Or if you had some way to weigh the strips, if that's more accurate than the yield monitor. I think that scale is probably doable if you had a little more bandwidth. How do you define how much bandwidth it takes though? I don't yeah, isn't that the question of the hours? Yeah. Um, so, and would yield be the main metric you would look for, or would there be any other soil, like maybe soil no, properties no, or? Could, yeah, yeah no, I talk about yield like, like a conventional non, like a dirt farmer, right? But no, <laughs> but no, soil health is important too. But I do think that you'll see soil health reflected in yield, right? I mean, that would be that's part of the goal too. Well, that's a, the yield stability piece, yeah. and you know, being able to kind of. Yeah, even things out a bit. But I mean, I think you can look, even you could look at building soil organic matter and those kinds of things too. And you could see, um, I mean, early, early plant health, I think is actually a pretty good indicator of soil health. I think I learned last year with my winter canola that seeding winter canola into marginal conditions is also an indicator of soil health. Because it's like the places where I had to seed the canola three times are the same places that everything struggles, right? Whereas the places that are generally fairly healthy, fairly good, they made it the first try. So winter canola seems to be a pretty good indicator. Yeah. Soil health. There are some other parts of Eastern Washington I drove through that kind of looked like the winter canola was like a big giant bioassay of yeah. uh, where soil moisture is retained. Yeah, no, I did mine right on the highway this year. So oh, that was nice. perfect. So everybody could watch it. Yeah, well, I got to drive by it every day. Oh, that's Let's the see. best place to do experiments. Isn't that's it? right, it is. Um, so, um, so do you want to talk a little bit more about some of your end of your decision making for a trial? And, you know, when you get to the end of the year and maybe you look at the yield monitor, or, you know, how the, how it looks like the, the crop performed over the year. Um, how do you decide if you're going to do it again next year or do something different? Well, I guess usually, so dad and I would sit down and we'd look at yields and where things have been. Um, you probably get a pretty good feel of it when you're doing your combine harvesting stuff of how things are going. Um, and we do pull regular soil tests too, not that it, I don't know that I can think of specific examples where we've seen results in the soil tests, but we do have them, but more on the, and then you weigh the difference of how much, uh, hassle it was versus how much benefit you thought you saw out of it. Right. And so, um, not this year, last year we did with our fertility, we added quite a bit of, we did some more humic acid type stuff and added 
So I was, I mean, I was up at five, when we were doing our top dress spring fertilizer application, I was up at 5.30 mixing batches to try and get all the stuff we wanted in there from all the different totes and everything figured out for what we were trying. And I think we saw results on that. But what we decided this year is that mixing all the things was too much of a pain. So we kind of split it down to what we could get more easily pre-blended. And then we still, but what we did feel was worthwhile was splitting up our foliar fertilizer applications here because part of our, our sandier soil doesn't have the carrying capacity for water or nitrogen for a long term, right? So when we're front loading that winter wheat by trying to put it, we, we can't put it on in the fall because we can't hold it over the winter. And so we just, well, we'll put it all on first thing in the spring. It's like, well, we're still probably overloading the soil then too and starving the wheat later on. And so being able to split up that foliar, I think made a big difference last year. This year we scrapped our last foliar application because it hasn't rained in a month. And we're like, I don't think it's going to make much difference at this point. So, um, but so those decisions at the end is kind of the, the parts that are more practical and what we can do and get things done on time still versus, and the benefit versus how much of a hassle it can be, how much margin we have to do things, right? Sounds like there's a lot more to the return on investment for these trials than just the dollar. There is. Out. Yeah, right. Yep. Yeah, there is. Time is probably our more limiting factor than money at times, really. Like, do you want to talk more about that and some of the, you know, these other return on investment factors on your as you're trying things? Because you you started talking about that, of course, in the 5:30 in the morning. Like we are pretty diversified, right? I mean, we have wheat, canola, sunflowers, um, cows, hay crops, and the flower garden, and raising three kids too. And it's like all those things are demands on time, right? So trying to figure that, and then where we're farming, like uh, the home place here for a while, I, I think we're down a little, but it's like I had like 170 landowners to put everything together with all these little houses and stuff we we're farming around. Um, so we're working on paring that down. And it's not that, and you know, those conversations are not bad. It's really good to be that face of agriculture to people who move out here who have no idea. That's, yeah, so that's, it's a hard balance, right? Between how much of that time is worth it um, because there is return and reward for being able to educate those people. And most of those interactions have been really positive, but they also take time and it's a hassle to spend more time turning your combine around a house than it is actually cutting the ring, right? That is one thing that picking up other ground farther away from housing and bigger chunks, it's amazing how inefficient the little pieces really are. And it's hard, it's a hard balance to come from um, feeling like we're a steward of this ground, right? And even though they built a house on it or break it up into 10 acres or whatever, it's like, well, we still want to be here to serve that, serve, to steward that dirt well, right? And show them how it should be taken care of. I don't have to do dirt again. <laughs> Sorry. That was bad. Listeners can't hear the cringe. No. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they could have. Maybe. I think it was audible that time. No. Um, Sorry about that. No, was... you're all, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but no, I think that is really important, though, that I mean, you really spoke to something powerful, though, that being the face of agriculture and, and the connection to to the land stewardship. And um, yeah, so that's it. But it's interesting trying to I mean, we're trying to I'm trying to prioritize my time and it's a return on investment thing again. Right. And this isn't really about the experimentation part, but it's trying to uh, actually do things that are worth my time. And because it's like because 
all the things do I miss time with kids or family or whatever if I'm doing spending too much time turning corners it's I mean, as simple as that really but uh, and that's an important part of your return on investment it is. Um, that's right. yeah. that, that fam the happy family not to be underestimated yeah and so it's been interesting trying to have these conversations with people that say hey I'm no longer going to take care of this and I don't really have a good option for what you're going to have to do but I guess you'll have to figure it out because it's like there aren't really very good options up here for people to do with their ground you know the title of this podcast is called on farm trials there's a so there's a there's a range of different implications there true. i think there you're is, covering sure. some of those yeah, too that's right. <laughs> so it'll be interesting to see what people come up with to do with their eight acres to keep it from going to weeds right there's a good experiment there yeah no i hear you could be farming around like giant rocks though instead yeah. yeah <laughs> there's there's are, other there's all there, kinds yeah. of stuff people farm around in this so, part of the world. The problem is on a breezy day, if you spray beside a rock, you're not gonna kill their petunias. Mm. And they don't the rock doesn't call you and say, What are you doing? Are you poisoning me? Oh yeah. Ooh. And it's like, No, no, we're not. We're being responsible stewards. But Well, I mean I think from what I'm hearing, you really are thinking a lot about your land management it's great that for people to really see that in practice but making sure that that works out for for your farm because yeah. you know if it, it does nobody any good for y'all to grow broke either right no, no right yeah keep, keep doing not that yeah. back to the, the return on the return on investment for the practices piece too dad and i've had a lot of conversations too about how much long-term work do we put into the ground that you don't have i mean like Maybe we have a three-year lease on it. Maybe we have a five-year lease on it. Maybe it's going to be in houses next year, right? Like, it's hard to put a lot of money and effort into a long-term investment into ground that, that it's that uncertain. So we've struggled with that, too, over the years. So, Where do you go to learn more about a topic that you want to try? Well, I am on the board for PNDSA. So, of course, PNDSA conference and, uh, is a good place. And, yes, and the content is good. The people there and the conversations that happen after and between are probably equally valuable, though, as the actual presentations. But you have to have some kind of catalyst to get everybody there, right? So um, and that's a good one. Um, talking to neighbors, other farming friends, other places. Um, I mean, I have a friend in Iowa who farms corn and soybeans, but there's things that they do that I've, I call and ask him questions all the time especially about the planter. Since we got the planter, I've had to call him a lot. But there's other things too where they're doing cover crops or um, even other less conventional fertilizer methods and stuff like that that I've been able to talk to him about. That it's really interesting to see, well, they do that there, but what pieces of the, what pieces could we apply? I don't know. Usually you just write it off of, eh, it rains in the summer there, so it makes all the difference. <laughs> but. Yeah, there's a lot of practices it's easy to put in that category, but I guess hopefully what we can capture as part of this work here with the podcast is is how we are working at collectively to figure out how to translate some of those things yeah. they're doing. No, there has to be some of the same. I mean, we're all growing plants. Some of the principles have to apply. We're all using soil to grow plants, <laughs> right? And we're all interested in that soil health piece, no matter where we're farming and no matter what your rainfall is. But. Well, and really just the, the variability across where we grow wheat as a core crop in our region is remarkable. I, so, I mean, I think there's, you know, what works 
for one farm, I mean, 10 miles away isn't going to work for it. I'm sure between just the spread of the land you farm, you say um, that things are, are working some places and not others because of just well, such even, high variability. Yeah. Even here at home, we have the sandier soil around the house and the farm here. And then we farm about half the farms up in the hills over there and the soil is completely different. And it's like, I've been trying to farm it the same way, but I'm wondering if there's places where that's not actually serving me the best, right? There's ways that soil should be farmed differently than this. Um, so could you, it sounds like you might've talked about this potentially already, but maybe there's a different one, but, uh, that you, you'd like to share, but, um, could you talk a little bit about the most memorable time that you experienced unintended consequences on a, on a trial? Well, I mean, the sunflower failure comes to mind first, right? That's, uh, yeah, that one comes the biggest. I mean, because you think unintended consequences are usually negative, right? So, or at least the ones that stick with you. So the cover crop grazing thing has really intrigued me, right? Because we're short on, I mean, so we raise hay, but we have had years when we end up dry where we feed like seven months out of the year. And that takes a big bite out of profits, right? To feed hay. And so trying to figure out how to extend our grazing season. And then there's also a lot of research in that the grazing and cover crops helps build your soil health and stimulate that soil biology and all of that. And so we've tried to look for places we can do that. Um, we picked up a piece of ground just right across the highway last year that we were able to seed a couple 30 acre patches to cover crop and then run the cows on it. And then the rest of the field was all was conventional fallowed, um, which is unusual for us in a no-till situation. But stepping into a new piece of ground, we had extreme measures had to be taken, right? So, <laughs> um, so it'll be really interesting to see this year how that, if we can see the yield difference. Because with the no rain last fall, there was certainly an emergence timing difference in the where we had grazed it, it definitely used the moisture. Like, I, we have not been able to see the reports of the cover crop ground staying wetter. We still, when we have cover cropped and grazed, we've used our moisture every time so far. So um, I'd like to think that we would not do that, right? I mean, I understand the idea of having a canopy and all of the holding the moisture and cycling the water, but I haven't been able to do it yet. So I don't know. But at least if we're grazing it, then we get a benefit. You know, we're, we're at least using using that moisture for, for good, not just letting it go away. So, um, but it'll be interesting to see this year what the yield is based on how the wheat came out, um, came out of the ground last fall. And then it'll also be interesting in the future to see if we can see any other benefits besides just that one fall moisture thing, right? Because like maybe having the cows on the ground is good for it in the long term, right? So, so, that'll, be, so that'll be a good one. And then we have another, uh, we have another spot. We're working with a neighbor who's putting in cover crop this year to put um, our cows on. So we'll see how that. Goes. Oh, um, what did it, ah, I was trying to remember the the one that really worked. The sorghum Sudan grass pretty much took over. It had some, it was six different species. There were some broadleaves and stuff in there, some cowpeas and some other um, what else, faba beans. Warm stuff. Yeah, warm seed. It was so it was a the one that really did well was a later seeded, late warm season mix. And I wanted that because I knew I was going into wheat and I figured the warm season grasses would frost out if I didn't get them killed some other way. So um, so that's why we did that. And that one was really successful as far as I think we ran thirty cows on that for five weeks or something on thirty acres. That was I was really happy with that. Um, our cool season mixes did not do well last year. We tried a little bit here behind the house, but had oats and some other things in it that were more cool season. They just didn't produce the forage value. We couldn't run the cows on them very long. So, but part of that early season growth is tough when it's not hot. <laughs> so, well, maybe I don't know. Are you going to replicate that in time? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
we do in we did ask uh, Chris, who's planting the cover crop for us, to uh, that we're going to run the cows on to definitely have the sorghum Sudan in there and a little bit of millet and some of the things that we saw work in his mix. I think his mix is more diverse overall because he's adding those things to his mix that he's done before. So, Ooh, yeah. So, yeah. Great. Well, like I said, let's do a little bit more lightning round style. What's what's the most annoying thing about trying stuff on your farm? Logistics of figuring out how to do it and the having to stop and change something in the middle of like your seeding flow or your spraying flow or whatever, right? Or having to mix a partial tank of something. It's just it's we're driven to be on for for being timely, right, on everything, and so it always feels like you're pushed for time to do the things to change it up. That's worth it though, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. The other most disappointing thing is keeping track of what you did. Do you have any tricks for that? No, I fail at that every year. Okay. Well, maybe, <laughs> I'm sure you just made a few people feel better about That's it. right. I'm hoping maybe I'll listen to the podcast later and get some ideas for that from other people, right? I hope so. <laughs> it's definitely on the list of goals. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Um, what's the most fun thing about being a farmer? Mm, I think doing it with family. It was really fun. And I have three kids, two girls, 11 and 8, and a boy who's three, and they love the farm. And it's really, it's been a really good segue to have the flower farm because it has a lot of hands-on stuff that they can really start doing early. Um, but then they like, I mean, tractors are everybody's favorite. And we go check check fields or look for calves in the spring when they're coming. And um, just being able to do all the things with the family is really cool. That's probably the most fun part. I don't think that a lot of jobs offer that much family integration. So not that that doesn't, I mean, you know, everything's a two-sided coin, right? So it takes time, but it's good. That return on investment. It is. It's the return on investment piece. Yes. So. Awesome. Well, on that note, is there someone you would like to nominate to be on the podcast? Well, you can find out what's in Chris's cover crop mix if you go talk to Chris Eckhart, right? Awesome. I'd love to do that. I hear he's got some mycorrhizae stuff that he's He's doing. He plays with soil stuff, too. You'll have to see how much he wants to tell you about, but yeah. He also started me on the planter deal, so. Excellent. Well, I've had a couple of good conversations with him before. I, yeah. I'll make sure to hit him up. Good. Thank you so much for yeah. being on this um, on the podcast today, Dusty. It's always a pleasure to visit with you. Thank yeah, you. thanks for coming out. As always, a big thank you to our guests today for sharing their wealth of knowledge and experience with us. This podcast is produced by the PNW Farmers Network team with music credit to Carlos Flores. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers alone and do not represent that of the PNW Farmers Network or any associated agencies. Please remember that experimental results will vary and listeners are encouraged to try things at home. Until next time, happy trials. Thank you for joining us for the On-Farm Trials podcast with the PNW Farmers Network. If you like what you heard, please support this work by sharing, rating, and reviewing. And do consider joining us as a guest or nominating a friend who is trying things on their farm. We look forward to hearing from you. <laughs>